Good morning, friends. I'm going to borrow Brian's stand right here for a minute. Imagine this. You wake up tomorrow morning on a boat. There are probably two questions that you would like answered. How did I get here? And where is this thing going? Right? I mean, if you woke up tomorrow morning on a boat, I mean, you went to bed in your bed tonight and we woke up on a boat, you would wonder, how did I get here? And where is this thing going? That's actually a a pretty good description of your life. We just forget to ask the questions because somehow we, we got here very, very young and now we're older and we just took a lot for granted that we should be here. And so we stopped asking the question, how did we actually get here? And where's this life? Where's this thing going? And so we open up the scriptures every single weekend and we open up God's story. We discover the answers to those two questions, that God created you on purpose, for a purpose. You were made to be here. It's the fruit of of a love relationship in the Godhead that creates us in his good creation. And currently we're not existing in the way he formed us to in the garden where we would walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. And sin has fractured everything and we've experienced that fracturing. We've experienced the hardships in our own life between relationships within the world itself and especially a fracturing with God. But God does not leave his creation to fend for itself or abandon it. He has a purpose so that history, his story, is moving in a direction that the creator of all things is also the redeemer of all things. And he's on a mission to bring his good creation back into its form. And so we read that God will one day recreate the heavens and the earth, that we would have new heavens and new earth, and that we would actually exist in relationship with God on the earth as we experience the recreation of all things. So how do we get here? God created us on purpose, with a purpose. Where's this thing going? Oh, God's going to redeem all things, and then those who love him will be with him forever. If you get those two questions answered, perhaps a third percolates. Are we supposed to be doing something on this boat as we wait for that reality? And so as we think about what are we supposed to be doing, what kind of lives should we be living, I think there's, generally speaking, two kinds of thoughts in our Christian mind. Some of us think we're on a boat like this, like a carnival cruise, It's like, oh man, I'm in Jesus, this is great. We're gonna get to heaven sometime. And so now I'm going down and hanging out by the pool where there's some drinks and snacks. And I'm sure someone will let me know when we're about a half hour away from our destination. Like just sit back, relax, it doesn't matter. This whole thing is just gonna be changed in a twinkling of an eye. What could I do about it? Other Christians don't think they're on that boat. They think they're on this boat. This is the battleship. 
It's like, man, the world is like enemy territory. And we are behind iron and our guns. And everywhere we go, we're just suspect of everyone, just shooting them down until we get back to port. I'd like to suggest we're on neither of these ships, but something altogether different. But knowing how we're here and where we're going, let's jump back into our text in Luke and try to figure out, are we supposed to be doing something? So we're in Luke chapter 19. Thankful for Jay preaching last week. He does such a great job, not only preaching, but also leading our community life. So thankful for Jay. And we're going to pick up near where he left off in Luke 19. And we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Now, you kind of situate yourself in the story. Jesus has turned his gaze towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the mission that he's on is going to be accomplished. This is at Calvary, on the cross, dying for our sins. He's told his disciples, I'm going there. I'm going to be betrayed. Son of man's going to suffer. They're going to put me to death. I'm going to be dead for three days. After three days, I'm rising. I'm not staying dead. And there's something in their mind where they create an expectation that when they arrive in Jerusalem with Jesus to accomplish this mission, then the kingdom is gonna arrive. The boat's gonna reach the destination and the kingdom of Israel is gonna be restored. And so they're kind of like, I'm with Jesus. This is why they have a triumphal entry because of their expectations of what's about to happen, that he will not only inaugurate the kingdom, but it'll be consummated there too. And to temper those expectations and teach them something else about the kingdom so they have right expectations, he tells them this parable. And we're going to learn three things about the kingdom. We're going to learn the timing of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and the consequences of the kingdom. All right, so here's Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, Jesus teaching, this is coming off the heels of the story of Zacchaeus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Remember a story that set aside a reality so so that we know what Jesus is up to. He told them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So this is to correct a false expectation. They think it's going to appear immediately. Let me tell you a story so that you understand where you are on the journey. Verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling his 10, sorry, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas or minas, you could say it either way, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money, that's the minus, to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, 
which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And he said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. As I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's a story <laughs> totally worth exploring. So remember a couple principles of, of parables. There's usually a general teaching for each main character. I think we have really four characters here. You might reduce it to three. The landowner, serp, good servants, bad servants, and then the citizens, the enemies, the before, or you could just do servants. What's the lesson there? But what does it tell us about the kingdom? Like, on our time, from our, from our departure to our destination, what's, what's Jesus interested in? So these people who are following Jesus for some time think that the kingdom is going to arrive immediately in Jerusalem, and he has to set expectations. So the first thing he says is, let me tell you about the timing of the kingdom. It's not right now. There, there's gonna be a long interval of time. It's like a king, I'm the king, who leaves to a foreign country, a foreign land. And it's far away, so there's gonna be some time. And as he leaves, he invests some of his resources in 10 servants. Now this king must have a very impressive kingdom if it's so large to be going such a far distance. But what he gives his servants is not that impressive of an amount of money. A mina or a mina is really, the relative, is really about three months wages of a day laborer. So not a lot of money. Let's, let's kind of put it average median income. I don't know. Let's say you make $5,000 a month. So he's giving you about $15,000 to invest. Now this person owns a kingdom. It's like he has billions and billions and billions of dollars. And so he's giving a very small amount to each person. And he's giving the same amount to all of his servants. Take three months wages and use it while I'm away. And while he's away, the servants do business. What does that mean? They're investing it. So they've received a free gift, and now they're investing that gift for the purposes of gaining more wealth for the king's return. And when the king returns and he pulls his servants in, the parable only highlights three servants. They don't account for all 10. Did you notice that? Just three of them. And there's three kind of categories, one who makes a lot, one who makes some, and one who makes none. And then there's this, this idea of the enemies, which will have to have a consequence. But all, all of those who are held to the king are held accountable. That's the consequences of the kingdom. Which means there's a response of the king to everyone who exists in the world. There's great consequences, in rewards, and there's severe consequences, in judgments. 
And the, the king first pulls in these two servants, one who went from one to 10. So if you're making $5,000 a month and he gives you $15,000 and you multiply that by five, so it goes from, for 10, sorry, over 10, goes to 10, that's $150,000. That's pretty good. The guy person who makes five made $75,000. That seems like a really good return on investment. Would you like that kind of return on your investments? Yeah, that'd be great right now, wouldn't it? So he first pulls in the person who makes 10, and then he pulls in the person who makes five. And you have to see first and foremost how generous this king is. I mean, almost embarrassingly generous. His heart towards his servants is for them in a radical way. So here's three months' salary. You've invested it. The first person, 10 times what you gave me, which is impressive. And what's his reward? 10 cities. That's insane. That's like, you, you can't even have your mind comprehend that. It'd be like me leaving and saying to someone, okay, listen, I'm gonna give you a babysitting job and watch this one kid. And if more kids need to be babysat, you know, you just take care of them. And I come back and like, I, I babysat 10 kids. Like, wow, 10 kids. Now let me make you in charge of 10 cities. And so what we see about the king first and foremost is that he's radically generous. He wants to be generous. His reward is not even worth comparing to the things that we experience in this world. So just imagine this. You stand before him as a servant and say, you gave me one, I bring you five. And he says, wow, five minas. I'm gonna give you five cities. I'm gonna have you oversee Denver, and Colorado Springs, and Erie, and Fort Collins, and Boulder. You're going to be in charge of all, the whole budget, which would be billions and billions of dollars. That's the king's attitude. His desire is to bless and reward. That's just really helpful to know. That's part of the nature of the king in his kingdom, is it's a kingdom of reward. And then he pulls in this third servant. And what did the third servant do? He received the same amount as the others. But did he make any investment? No, he, he put it in a handkerchief, it says, and he hid it away. So he took what was given to him. It was, it was a gift to him. It wasn't his. He didn't earn it. He just received it, and he put it in the safe, and he locked it up, and he did keep it safe. And so then when the, the king returns, he says, here's your, here's your mina back. Here's your money back. And the king calls him a wicked servant. Now, this is where the tension of the parable builds. Would you call that person a wicked servant? It just feels like, no, we might call him like not a great servant. Man, you missed, you missed the memo. You missed the meeting. Maybe beforehand you were supposed to do something with that. But would we call him a wicked servant? It just kind of rubs us wrong. And then what happens is he takes away what was given to him and they give it to the person who has the most. And even the people in the parable object to this. Like, wait a minute. Why do you give it to the guy who has 10? He doesn't need any more. So we think, oh, what do we not understand about the kingdom and the king that Jesus wants to communicate? Part of the nature of the kingdom is this. The reason the king gives gifts to his servants is not to keep them private for ourselves, but to invest them for the sake of others. The reason the king gives us anything is so that we would take risks with his resources and invest it 
that it might be multiplied to his benefit. Now, the servant says this to him. The servant says, I know, says, I know that you are severe. Do you guys see that? And does the king say, I'm not? Does he say that? No. What does the king say? I'll use your own words, your own evaluation of me. I know how severe you are. He says, okay, well, if you knew how severe I was, maybe out of fear then you should have done something. Like maybe these, these first servants were doing something because they knew of the love of the master. If you think I'm so severe, I'm not gonna correct that. I'm, I am a severe master. But that should have motivated you to do something. But you did nothing. And so he doesn't try to correct his view of him. He says, if you have that view, it still should have motivated you to do something. And so my judgment on you the reason I call you wicked is not because you have a false assumption of me, is that even with your assumption of who I am, you are still unmotivated to do anything. Now, I read that, and immediately, probably like you, I thought, oh, that sounds like Zephaniah 112. <laughs> What's funny is that actually came to my mind, and I was like, oh, that's so good, because I've been in Zephaniah lately. And he's, a, he's an Old Testament prophet speaking about the coming judgment on God's people and then that God would redeem them out of exile, bring them back into the land, and then there'd be the day of the Lord. This is the coming of the kingdom where all things are restored and he brings in the crippled and the blind and the outcast and he restores them into one community where God dwells amongst his people. This beautiful picture. But in Zephaniah 1.12, there's this picture of the day of the Lord. And on the day of the Lord in Zephaniah, let me see if I can get there. One twelve is at that time, okay, this is the coming of the kingdom. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. This is the cruise ship Christian. This is the one who's, who takes from the Father the good gifts that he's given. This is those who sit on it, who put it in their handkerchief and keep it private, hidden away, because they think God's not gonna do good, nor will he do ill. And so I'm not moved to any action. And so the judgment on them is on their inaction called here complacency. In some ways, I think this could be a threat to our Western Christian faith. Is that when we think of God, we don't think God's gonna do anything really good for us. It's like, God doesn't work that way in our lives. Like, he's not responding to my prayer. He's not doing good. It's just kind of out there. Nor is he really gonna do ill. I mean, he already gave us Jesus, which forgives all sins. And so there's not really any gonna be any consequence for any ways that I live because it's all forgiven in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so in complacency, it's like, I'm just gonna go grab a beverage and some snacks and go sit down by the pool. And surely someone will let me know when this thing's about to arrive. And the parable that Jesus is teaching says, okay, the timing of the kingdom is not right there in Calvary. There's gonna be a time, an interlude between the inauguration of the kingdom, victory over death, 
and the consummation of all things when everything is renewed. And in that period of time, the nature of the kingdom says invest. Don't be complacent. Be purposeful with the way that you're living. Live out intentionally what God has given you. And there are real consequences, both in rewards, like just obscene generosity of rewards for those who invest. And there are real consequences for those who are complacent and say, it doesn't matter. I think this is why in in Romans, when when Paul is talking to Israel saying, okay, what just happened with Jesus? He says, this is Romans chapter 11, 22. Consider, think about both the kindness and severity of God. Like so many of us just want to take Jesus and just wrap him up in kindness. Like, oh, just buddy Jesus. Okay, don't forget about his severity, that he's God. He's a holy God. He's our holy God. And we're an unholy people. And so consider the severity of God too. And so both give a picture of the character of God. Think about his kindness, wow, and his severity. Wow, that's the God that we serve. And the nature of the kingdom is a kingdom of investment. The reason that God has invested in you is so that you'll invest it in others. So here's a question. What does it mean, What's a mina? Like, what, what is that transferable? What's Jesus trying to get across here? What are the gifts given to the servants to be deployed as he's in a faraway country waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool? What, what is that for us? Well, there's two gifts given. There's the gospel message and there's the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer, if you belong to Christ, two gifts that have been given to you is the message of God, the gospel message, that God so loved the world that he wouldn't abandon the world, he wouldn't remain aloof, but he came to the world. God gave his son. He's a gift-giving God. He gave his son so that whomever would believe in him would be saved. Whoever would profess Jesus as Lord and Savior would be forgiven. So you have the gospel message. The gospel message of reconciliation, where this thing is going. And then it's not up to you and your power. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, where do I get that? Well, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he gathers his servants, the disciples together, and he gives them these two gifts. Go be my witnesses and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus speaks about this, this in several places. Matthew 24, he's talking about the end of the age, and he doesn't want his disciples, to be ignorant of what's coming. Matthew 24, verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the end only comes after the gospel message that has been given to you is proclaimed, preached, shared, where? to all the nations in the world. If you go back to Luke, Luke chapter 24, this is after his death and resurrection. He's with his disciples at the very end of the book. 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's what just happened. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed 
in his name to all nations, beginning, not ending, not consummating, but beginning here in Jerusalem. This is the starting point of the kingdom that's like, it's like leaven in bread that's just going to take over as it goes out. And so I'm giving you the message to go out. Verse 20, or sorry, verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so he's gathered his disciples after his resurrection. He said, okay, everything that the scripture said was fulfilled in the the suffering of the servant to come and die for the forgiveness of sins and to rise victory over death. And now I gather you in with this message of the gospel that you would be my witnesses that I'm gonna give my spirit to so that you would go do this. These these are the minas. I give you the message. I give you my spirit. Go invest. Like go take risks. Go go just share it with people. That's what the disciples do. And so if we had time, we would go to Acts, which is Luke part two. All the things the disciples continued to do in the power of Jesus, where they gather and he unpacks the kingdom in chapter one. And he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they start doing that. And then we start seeing passages like Acts 12, 24 and 16, 5, where it says, and the word of God increased. We see that the church increases. And so they're doing what they were commissioned to do. And in their time, they've been entrusted with the gospel and with the Holy Spirit not to be hidden and privatized in their life, but to be invested and shared with others. And where do you do it? Everywhere. Who's not doing that? Complacent Christians. Complacent Christians. And I I have times in my own life where I I feel the complacency, like God's not gonna do ill, he's not gonna do good, what's it matter? But there are also these times in which I love to see what God's up to. And I'm so motivated by the gospel message again that I just can't help but share. And I share with everybody. And maybe this is like you. This last week, a handful of pastors from Calvary and hundreds of pastors around the country, we were up in Chicago for a conference. And while we were in Chicago, there were a few places that I wanted to visit. One in particular was this Irish restaurant and pub. And you can send the email later, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so we, we went over to this Irish restaurant and pub, and as we walked in, it was far more pub than restaurant. And it wasn't like Cheers where everybody knows your name. Like the whole place just like turns, and they're like, you don't belong here. And as we walk in, there were some patrons of the restaurant that were like, where are you from? I said, oh, we're from Colorado. We're visiting Chicago. And another patron says, what the bleep are you doing here? And I was like, oh, we're here for a pastor's conference. <laughs> it was great. And like just their face is like, I, I don't really know what to do with that. And so I said, why are you judging me? Like, no, I'm not judging you. I'm like, yeah, you're judgy eyes. They're all like judging me. And this one guy's like, no, no, it, it's so totally fine. And so I'm like, why you're here? Like, this isn't a great place to be. I said, well, now you know why I'm here. Why are you here? 
And so I sat down and just for the next hour, sitting down with patrons of this Irish pub and those who are working there talking about everything, talking about their story of faith and their experience with the church, the good things, the abuse that they've experienced as well, talking about their families and their marriages and and the kids and and the different personalities that their children have and and the struggles that we share as parents and and then the moral compass that we want our kids to have. And and where do you get that from? And and they were talking about Jay Cutler for a minute and how terrible a quarterback he was. And it was like De Bears for a minute. And then it was back to Jesus. And I said, you know, maybe the Bible is a place where you want to reinvestigate like just the moral principles that you'd want your kids to have. I think what you described is described in the scriptures. And well, I, I, I like the Bible, but it also says these things. And so these are my objections. This is why I hate the Bible. And, and then I got to share like, well, maybe those things aren't true assumptions. Maybe those were false teachings that you've received. And, and all of that in an, in an hour of maybe you should give Jesus another try. Like he's worth a second look. It's great. Now, they don't just repent and accept Jesus right there. I could tell you a story of, of that, but you know what? Those are, those are further and far between than just the regular stories of talking about Jesus everywhere you go. And I'm the same person here as I am in Chicago, as you meet in the lobby in Erie. I'm just one person. And I love to talk about the things that Jesus has invested in us. And who knows, perhaps they'll take a second look at maybe one of those churches we talked about. Perhaps they get to heaven and they tell you, hey, this wasn't a joke, but a bunch of pastors walked into a bar (laughs) and had a conversation I wasn't expecting to have about why Jesus was worth a second look. Who knows? It doesn't matter because the kingdom's nature is just invest everywhere. Take risks, share, be bold. Let's see what God does. And so we show up and we say, you gave me this. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, not me, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you did this. Man, I love being a Christian. God forbid we ever be complacent with it. So what kind of boat are we on? If we're not on a cruise ship, just sitting by the pool, waiting for arrival. And I don't think we're on a battleship trying to blow away all the enemy. What kind of boat are we on? I think we're on a boat that looks more like this. Does anybody know what boat this is? What'd you say? That's the JJ Mosquito. This is down the Amazon River in Brazil. 10,000 bonus points for you. Over the last two decades, Hundreds of people from Calvary under the leadership of David and Jan Stites have boarded this boat to go down the Amazon to do medical care, to do VBS, to do construction, to be witnesses in word and deed of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, to partner with an indigenous church there to invest in their local area. This is just one example of missions here at Calvary. This is a global picture. What does the inside of this boat look like? What's teeming with life and excitement and joy? Actually, just take a look inside this boat of what life looks like living on this boat.
I'll tell you, nothing beats being on mission with God. Nothing does. Because you know, how did we get here? It was on purpose for a purpose. Where's this thing going? It's going to the purpose of restoring all things. And what is the activity today? Is the partnership with the Lord in his work. Let me ask you this question. Where, where are you doing it? How are you doing it? How do you want to do it? Like to just to dream big, think big. Conversations within your own family, in your community, neighborhood, people at work you just take out to lunch and just ask a ton of questions and have fun doing it. Be risky. Live your life knowing that God loves for you to take a risk. You can't outgive God and enjoy it. Your life will be filled with stories of how God multiplied what he gave you in the lives of others. You've been with the pastors this week. We talked about the churches in Turkey right now. And the EFCA, that's the family of churches we're a part of, is highly involved in the crisis response this last week and will continue to be in the days, the weeks, months, and years to come. But in the, in the country of Turkey, there are millions and millions and millions of people. And there are 10,000 known Christians. And the stories that we were sharing as we were together are some of those 10,000 Christians that are hosting Muslim neighbors, brothers and sisters in their homes and sharing the gospel with them this last week. Sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with them this week. And, and so we just wanna pray for all of our Christian brothers and sisters that are welcoming war, not war-torn, but tragedy-torn neighborhoods into their lives and that they would have just the courage not to be complacent Christians hiding their faith away, but to be bold and courageous to share and to see what God would do with it all. The question that we each have to ask is, where am I making kingdom investments with the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because the one thing for sure that our parable teaches is that it's not acceptable to hide it away. Let's pray. Father, I love my friends in this room. And I don't know where they're at in the joys and sorrows of life, but I do pray that you would reawaken our hearts and our enthusiasm for the things that you're up to in the world around us. Father, may we be risk takers to share the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the repentance of the forgiveness of sins, eternal life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere we find ourselves this week, let us be the same people in this room as we are on Monday morning. And Father, would you delight to take our offerings and multiply them. We want to surrender our whole life to you, that you would use it for kingdom purposes. Amen.